Made in Latin America. 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 Welcome to Made in Latin America, a new podcast brought to you by the Santo Domingo Center of Excellence for Latin American Research at the British Museum. In this podcast, you'll be listening to insights and interpretations about iconic collections at the British Museum, as well as examples from the more than 60,000 items, of which many have never been on display. Join us in this series that will deepen and challenge what you know about Latin America. This season explores the Tolimteya Codex, one of the few surviving pre-Hispanic pictorial manuscripts made more than 500 years ago in the Mystic region in Mexico. In which language is it written? Why is its blue color so unique? What stories does it tell? The podcast will be hosted by two curators from the Latin America Center, Laura Osorio Sonax and Maria Mercedes Martinez Milanchi. Indigenous researchers, communities, and artists working with this codex will join us throughout the season. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Made in Latin America podcast. My name is Maria de las Mercedes Martinez Miranchi. I go by Mercedes, and I'm from San Juan, Puerto Rico. I'm the project coordinator and curator here at the Santo Domingo Center. Um, I'm trained in material science applied to archaeologists and with a focus in the Caribbean. Um, but currently, I'm interested in how coloniality um, conditions different museum collections in the Caribbean and its reception worldwide. Hi, so my name is Laura Osorio Sonex and I'm the head of the Santo Domingo Center of Excellence for Latin American Research. Uh, I was trained as an archaeologist at UCL in London. Uh, I studied classics and classical archaeology, but I went in to Mesoamerican archaeology for my master's and PhD. I'm half Mexican and half English, and I'm now mostly interested in contemporary indigenous receptions of archaeological heritage. So I have a much more focused interest on the contemporary politics of culture and archaeology. Today, we're going to introduce you to the Donindeya Codex, which is the object and focus for this season. It's not only a very beautiful manuscript, it is also a very important document that tells a part of Latin American history. Who wrote it? What does it say? And why is it so interesting? We'll tackle all of these questions in the first episode of Made in Latin America. Just to let you know how it's going to work, this episode is going to be a conversation between me and Laura, and we will include comments from different specialists who have worked with us on these projects. They are predominantly indigenous specialists. Throughout the episode, there's going to be storytelling excerpts about the Donindeya Codex that's going to be read by Miguel Villegas Ventura. Miguel is a Mixtec rapper that goes by the name Unaisu. He lives in California and composes songs in English, Spanish, and Mixtec. It begins with grass. Tall yellow blades cut by strong hand. See a man, a man who will rule a wide kingdom one day. He knows this, whose ambition will climb mountains and stand him lonely on the top. A young man now, with the story of battle and conquest ahead of him, of love and betrayal. But for now, humble grass, growing from brown earth on the side of the mountain, cut by this young man's strong hands, and wrapped into a shape as an offering before a hunt. So, Lara, this episode is about the Donindeya Codex, which is at the British Museum. And I was wondering if you could maybe describe it physically for our listeners since they can't see the codex right now. 
I will describe it. And uh, it's really important because obviously there's a there's a copy of this codex in the Mexico Gallery at the British Museum on permanent display. But the actual object is incredibly uh, delicate and very old uh, and and very precious. And so it's not on it's not on display to the public. So I'll try and I'll try and describe it. It's uh, it's it's a very long piece of deerskin. It's eight meters long. There are pages folded into the deerskin in order to create a concertina, like an accordion. So it's an accordion-shaped book, and it's painted in gesso on both sides. And then on top of that gesso, the pictures that tell the stories are painted in natural pigments, very bright uh, and beautiful colours. The pages are not read left to right, as in a Western book, but they're read from right to left. Uh, You start in the bottom right-hand corner and then there are these red lines through the pages that you use to follow in a snake-like form the different pictures as they unravel on each page. It's what in English is called bustrophodon or the ox-ploughing style of writing, which means that you read, as I said, from bottom to top, top to bottom, bottom to top, like a snake. And so then all of the pictures sort of follow that directionality to an extent. So we call this a codex, right? And it's like the word that's been used to describe um, a lot of these pictorial manuscripts. But like, is it actually a codex? No, well, not really. The word codex is a word that's used for medieval manuscripts in Europe. And so the word codex doesn't strictly apply to these books that were made in many cases around what are the medieval times uh, in Europe, but in Mesoamerica. But uh, but yes, fundamentally, it's it's culturally an inappropriate word. So I think the the most descriptive words that you could use in English are pictorial manuscript. Interesting. And so, how did this codex end up at the British Museum? Because I know there's like really few of these codices, pre-Columbian codices, in circulation. There aren't there aren't very many pre-Columbian codices extant at all. Uh, and this is one of very few, which is part part of what makes it so special. We don't really know. Uh, how many of the pictorial manuscripts that are in European collections, which I have to add is where most of these codices are kept now. Some of them are in the National Anthropology Museum in Mexico City. And there there are a few elsewhere, There's, uh, but most of them are in Europe. What it means is that they were probably gifted, extracted, bought, uh, traded after the conquest and and ended up, in this case, it ended up in a monastery in the 19th century and was later donated to the museum by the wife of the guy who became an owner. So her name was Baroness Zouche. And so that's where the the actual, the title of the codex or the historical title of the codex, the Zouche Nuttall came from. So Baroness Zouche. And then Nuttall comes from Zelia Nuttall, who's the woman who, he was a Mesoamerica, Mexico enthusiast, lived in Mexico for a long time and was the first person to write about the about the codex. And so a lot of these codices have have odd names like that, like the names of, I guess, random people that were involved in in its acquisition or in its arrival to the museum. But but recently this codex has been renamed, right? And it's been it's been called the Tonindeya Codex is how I referred to it earlier. Could you talk a bit about what Tonindeya means and how it got that name? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So, Zushnatal Codex, you're right, you're completely right. All of the codices that, that the way that academics, anthropologists, codex specialists speak about these, these manuscripts is usually using names relating to their colonial acquisition to the, and to their collection and to their European history, uh, which is 
in a sense a slight injustice on the basis that it's already sad that so many of these documents are far away from their communities and cultures of origin. And so the Donindeya Codex is a Mishtek uh, reference. It's in the Mishtek language. So it was actually work that was done by two uh, manuscript specialists, and that was Gavina Aurora Perez Jimenez and Martin Janssen, uh, who were both professors at Leiden University. And they wrote a publication. They've done a lot of work trying to rename all of the codices, not just this codex, to try to give them names in indigenous languages that come from the people who made these objects and that refer to what the codex is about. Codices document history or they document religious um, and ritual observances. They document calendar dates and, in some cases... Uh, complex and highly artistic narratives. That's the case of the Donidea Codex. But the Donidea Codex is actually painted on two sides. So what I didn't say earlier when you asked me to describe the book is that this screenfold manuscript, which is painted with a gesso uh, on both sides, means that actually you can read the book in one direction on one side of the deerskin and then you can read it on the other side of the deerskin as well. So they're actually two totally different narratives. But both of the narratives are about the genealogies of the Mishtek rulers, the pre-Columbian Mishtek rulers. And so Donindeye is a word in Mishtek which refers to dynastic lineages. Amazing. So it's sort of a reappropriation by these indigenous communities in Mexico to reclaim their heritage by renaming the codex with something that's actually relevant to them instead of to the British Museum. Yeah, or relevant to colonial acquisition. How is it written? How do we know what the stories are about? Because when you look at the codex, you don't really see any type of writing as we as we would recognize it in the Western world? No, no, absolutely. So um, it, they're highly esoteric, and I actually think they'd probably be very esoteric to people uh, in the 15th century in the Mishtek region, as, you know, as they are now. But, yeah, they're pictographic uh, documents, which means that they're not written in an alphabet, they're not written syllabically, they're written in terms of ideograms and, and pictures that describe people, they describe ideas, and they are able to ultimately describe narratives. Obviously, there are still loads of mysteries about what this, about what the Codex means. And I think certainly a lot of the nuance is lost even by specialists now and Mishtek speakers. What I can say about pictogra- the, the decipherment of pictographic codices is very difficult. And, the, and the, the only way that it's really been done is by putting together examples of different uh, Mishtek codices and trying to kind of understand what the different forms might mean. And obviously, if you think about it, the Mishtek way of describing using you know, pictorial forms is not completely divorced from pictorial forms from central Mexico. And there are Mishtek manuscripts which are much later than the Tonindea Codex. So they're, they're actually conquest era. And those codices, those pictorial manuscripts, include the Latin alphabet. They've got sort of writing that comes from the Spanish conquest. A lot of these manuscripts, which I think is fascinating, were actually made in order for uh, local indigenous leaders in Mesoamerica to justify territorial claims. So, for example, they would draw out maps and draw out de- genealogies of, of different rulers to show which lands belonged where and how they related to X and Y peoples. 
uh, and leaders. And so in order to communicate that to the colonial administration, they obviously didn't use just Mesoamerican pictorial forms. They appropriated European writing. And so it's, if, to, if you use those, those later manuscripts, you can decipher some of the forms that have then been used to interpret the pre-Columbian manuscripts like the, like the Donindeo Codex. Interesting. So you can use these colonial manuscripts basically as like a dictionary and and compare um, the different bits that are translated from the pictographic writing into Latin or Spanish. That's absolutely true. And I think that the only hindrance, well, there are various hindrances to it, which are that it's not e- very easily decipherable, even with the help of those colonial documents. And there are so few of these codices, even colonial era codices left. Uh, So much of the body of books that existed at the time of the conquest was almost completely eradicated by the colonial regime in a clear attempt to uh, erode indigenous knowledge. What I think is um, particularly important is that obviously there may not be any books and and the tradition of making these codices did die out shortly after the Spanish conquest to some extent, or at least in their indigenous form. But indigenous languages are still spoken and there's a lot of indigenous knowledge in lots of other ways and practices. Things like, for example, the use of steam baths, Temascal, which is actually shown in the Donindea Codex. So there is a lot of cultural continuity and what that means is contemporary indigenous Mishtek people can use their knowledge to to decipher these codices. So I, what I think is really interesting about this codex because it's one of the f- few pictographic codices I've I've seen at the museum is that even if you're talking with different um, variants of Mishtek or of other languages, because it is pictographic, you can understand it if you're reading it across many languages, right? Yeah, that's right. It can be read differently. Its pictorial nature, as you say, um, can evoke multiple different readings. Now the hunt. See the blessing earned from that offering, sharpen the young man's eye to the flip tip of his arrow, straighten his hand to his quickening bow. See that arrow flying fast, flying true to lodge between the beats of the harp of a coyote, slower this day than the man's blessed arrow. Now the laughter of brothers on the side of the mountain, our young man and three others returning to the temple. To his offering of grass, now add the stop heart of Coyote, a sacrifice fit for a blessing, fit for an adventure, fit to shape the four lives through. Lord Twelfth Movement, Lord Eighth Flower, Lord Ninth Flower, and our young man, Lord Eight Deer. Some brothers, some half-brothers, all friends, all companions, all uniting this day on the side of the mountain. Now a Sutu, a priest on the temple, robed, offers a blank ointment, a means of transportation from one true world to another true world. It smells earthy, other earthly, ancient. The men hold it. Smiles made of nerves or excitement? Either way, vision-giving ointment smears on skin, on face. Perception twist, landscapes shift, and the broad sun sparkles over their sinking and floating. Faces mingle, 
voices whisper. Knowledge is received. Wisdom transferred. A journey without walking. And in returning, the men smile again. Changed. Another interesting thing that's denoted in the pictographic writing are the main characters of of the codex, right, or the, of the pictorial manuscript. So the the protagonist of of the Donindaya Codex is Lord Eight Deer Jaguar Claw, and with with that like effusive name comes a really beautiful drawing. Could you describe that that pictographic sign for us? Yeah, absolutely. So he his name Eight Deer that part of his name refers to the day on which he was born. So he was born in the 12th century in the Mishtek region. For anyone who doesn't know where that is, it's in what is contemporary Oaxaca in uh, central southern Mexico. And historically, people were named after the day that they were born. So he was born on the day eight deer. And then at some point in the narrative, he is actually given a name specific to him, and that is Jaguar Claw. And so what you tend to see is a um, a little deer head and then eight little dots next to it. And then you see a turquoise dot with a claw coming out of it, which is the jaguar claw. And yeah, there's many other uh, important characters in the story, right? So there's also Lord Eight Deer Jaguar Claw's lover, wife. He never marries her. It's not his wife, but yeah, he has a he has a partner who he embarks on a very special mission with at the beginning of of the story, and they visit Lady Nine Grass at the beginning together, and it, it is inferred by specialists that they might be going to visit Lady Nine Grass. They're going to visit the ancestors so that they will endorse their partnership and marriage. But they are advised not to do that, and so they never get married. And so how is Lady Ninegrass depicted? Lady Ninegrass is depicted uh, variably because she appears in various codices, but in the case of the Donindeo Codex, she um, has a a skull head. She has a skirt uh, made of bones. She is the goddess of death and ancestors, so this is an interesting thing because obviously um, I think what people who are culturally sensitive to ancient Mesoamerican cultures tend to do is they tend to try to demystify or de-scarify a lot of the symbols that we see in ancient Mesoamerican art. And that's a really good reason because ancient Mesoamerica has been depicted, and it's mostly because of the Spanish uh, colonial sources, as this bloodthirsty place where people were committing human sacrifice, where you know people were cannibals, etc. Um, and that is very much, um, I think, an apologia um, on the part of Spanish chroniclers for the conquest, and also a misunderstanding, a fundamental misunderstanding of, of, of cultures. And so people were, as Zen people do nowadays, maligning other cultures. Uh, but I think in the case of Lady Nine Grass and the visit to uh, the Temple of Death in the Donindea Codex, actually Lady Nine Grass is supposed to be quite terrifying and this entire adventure was filled with trepidation and, and fear, etc. Is there any other instances in the Codex where there is some... Um like crass misinterpretations due to like the reliance on the Spanish chronicles or just lack of integration of contemporary Mishtec languages when looking at the pictographic? Yeah, that's an interesting question. 
So not to go into older interpretations, but just in terms of how important it is to take into account contemporary knowledge, contemporary linguistic knowledge precisely in understanding these books. So there is a part where Lady Six Monkey, who is the partner that we were talking about, Lord Eight Deer's uh, sort of uh, consort, she is warned uh, that fate, that a bad fate will befall her. And the original says, Yuchi, Yuchi, which means knife. Um, and the original interpretation of that was, "You will be killed with a knife. This is your this is your fate that we've that we've extrapolated." Uh, and newer interpretations are that, in fact, knife, knife, knife! Exclamation mark! Knife is actually a contemporary mystic way of saying, "Beware! Watch out!" So it's not a literal thing that says, "You will be killed with a knife." It's just be be careful. And they are actually very different interpretations, really, of what that's what's to be said. So, so it's true that. I think it's of particular importance to take into account indigenous uh, Mishtek uh, dialects in the interpretation of the Tonindea in this case. Definitely. And so let's turn a bit more to to the people, I guess, who are talked about in the Tonindea Codex and, and who wrote it, right? The the Mishtek people or the people of New Sawi. So, so who are they? Like, tell me more about um, the Mishtek people. Uh, so we don't know exactly who the artist was, who um, or scribe or maker, <laughs> who that person was who who made the Donny Deo Codex. Uh, but what we do know is that it wasn't actually a finished work; uh, it was a, it was a practice work. Um, it's obviously a, a practice work made by someone so deeply skilled um, in his artistic creativity and. Uh, and knowledge of these compound forms that that we've been talking about, but someone who ultimately was going to make a final, a very final draft, and that's not what we have. How can you tell that it's a practice work? You can tell that it's a, a practice work because of where you can see a palimpsest. So you can see paint coming, sort of layered one sort of painting or one drawing one on top of the other where mistakes have been made. What is the language that contemporary Mishtek people speak today? Well, it's referred to as Mishtek, as variants of Mishtek um, in in English and in Spanish because it's the Mishtek region. But I think what's sort of important to take away is that that the word Mishtek is not an autonym, i.e. It wasn't, it wasn't given to the people in that region by themselves. It's actually... Uh, comes from a central Mexican language, which is the Nahua culture, the Mexicas, who talked about the people from this region as being Mixtecs. So their autonym, the name they've given themselves, is uh, the Nusavi, the people of the rain. So if you've, for anyone who's ever been to the Mixtec region, it's very. It, it, some of it is by the coast, some of it is lowland, but most of it is very um, highland. It's a mountainous, it's in the Sierra Madre. And so it's... Uh, it's rainy and and it's very close to the clouds. It's a really it's a very beautiful place. Akukoyevando shindavini kanendo shando ichi nakai in ubitunshindo. Hello, my name is Miguel Villegas Ventura, also known as Una Isu. Today, I want to talk about the importance of promoting the Mishtek codices. Me growing up here in the United States, I did not have knowledge that these codices existed. Nobody talked about it. The schools didn't talk about it, and even the media didn't talk about it. You will hardly hear about it. What I didn't know about was about the Mexica nation, the Aztec nation. They talked a lot about their knowledge, about everything that they did, 
before colonization. There were even clubs at schools. There were even dances at schools. So the Mexican nation had more visibility, or at least there was some movement happening here in the United States. But even if I was indigenous, for some reason, I didn't directly connect with them because they had different culture or different language and different views. So as me speaking the language, me being from an indigenous nation, for some reason, I didn't fit in there either. And it was a problem because I did not know what was my origin. It is until I started questioning about our origin. If the Mexica had dances, knowledge, and so many things that they talked about, what about us? What is our background? By doing some research, I found out that the Mixteco Nation, the New Savi Nation, we had the codices, and that it was still around until now. Now you have them in museums, so that made me realize that there are other 67 nations besides the Mexicas that have been around in this continent, but their history is not being promoted, it's not being talked about. Many of the things that we had before colonization was taken from us and also was being erased from the history. And it's not something that many people talk about. So when I found out about the codices, this motivated me to learn more about my culture. And that's when I found out about Ocho Venado Garra de Jaguar, a dear Jaguar Claw. And I adapted his name in my artistic name, which is Una Isu in my native language. So just knowing that these codices existed, and motivating me to value my culture even more and know that we do have a history and that we do have astronomers and that we have scientists, we have medicine people. So we have a lot of things that are not being recognized um, just because it's not on paper or just because it's not in universities. But, you know, we do have a lot of knowledge and that made me feel very proud of being from the New Savi Nation. So it's very important to share this history with our community because we have to know that our history didn't start on the 90s or the 80s or the 70s. It started from thousands of years and we are still here. So we have to honor our people. We have to honor our ancestors. And learning about these codices is one way to do that. So Laura, why do you think the codex is... Interesting. Why, why do you think it's worth studying today? Yeah. So there's 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 two there's two answers to that. So the first answer, why do I love the Donnelly Codex, is actually because I think that the storyline is so deeply evocative. Something that, in many ways, we cannot understand. A kind of uh, historical development that feels incredibly alien to us. Something that happened so long ago somewhere else, and yet uh, it touches on lust for power. It touches on love. It touches on fate, uh, it touches on trauma and exploration uh, and ambition and fear and so many things that are human and that we can understand now as well as we 
would understand any powerful narrative that's written yesterday. So that's why I love it personally. But why do I think it's politically important? I think it's politically important. Uh, we've, t- we've touched a little bit on this idea of the reappropriation of cultural heritage by descendant communities, i.e. mischeck people renaming the codices and mischeck people using their own languages to decipher the, the, the content of the narrative. But it's also this idea that Mishtek culture is continuous. There, as I said, there people speak Mishtek language uh, in terms of religion, in terms of culture, in terms of food. Uh, all of this has survived uh, for thousands of years. But that said, um, it cannot be negated that there was an enormous interruption in that culture when, at the time of the Spanish conquest of Mesoamerica, and there is still a lot of ongoing racism and injustice in the region, um, as there is. Uh, all over the world. But I I feel that a kind of reappropriation of this kind of material culture is really useful in allowing indigenous communities who have historically been minoritized and marginalized to access their cultural history. Uh, And so, and and I think that the, the document, the pictorial manuscript, the document itself has an interesting history because as I was saying before, it's these sort of post-colonial uh, or colonial era documents that are sort of hybrid between Mesoamerican pictorial style and European writing that are used almost as lobbies towards a colonial administration to kind of talk about leadership and landscape uh, and and sort of insisting on indigenous uh, continued governance. The Codex actually does embody some really important resistance that's happening at the time of conquest and colonization. In in that sense, I think you, you could see pictorial manuscripts as a powerful symbol of indigenous uh, resistance. Now, a bakor, a game. The four men in the health of their youth test their strength, sweat and panting breath, and laughter echoing once more on the side of the mountain. The people of the temple beckon with water and cloth and bowls of sweet smells for the ceremony of cleansing, a ritual, a dance of soft fabrics of a scrub sore skin, clean. Lord eight dear, our young man step forward, receive a new name, Chower Claw, a strong name, Chower Claw, a name of battle and bravery and action. Jawar Claw, a name to hold proud to the challenge ahead. He is ready. Lord A. Deer, Jago Claw, feels an energy building. A wildcat snarl shaping itself within him. And under the broad sun of the day, a gentle breeze and his skin, too sensitive, tinkles cold. The warmth of his body desiring to shrink and to hide, but instead standing firm against a wind that twists and throws his hair, just as it twists and throws the tall grass on the side of the mountain, whose yellow blades are still dripping, scarlet where the coyote fell. Great, so in the next episode, we're going to discuss the language of the people who wrote the Codex and how Mishtek people are currently deciphering the pictographs using contemporary Mishtek variants of their language so thank you very much for joining us see you in the next episode the epic of lord a deer was read aloud by miguel villegas ventura this creative reinterpretation scripted by jack monaghan is based on the toninteye and other mystic codices 
Dimension Lore A Dear Story. We are particularly indebted to the book Encounter with the Plum Serpent, Drama and Power in the Heart of Mesoamerica by Martin Jensen and Gavina Aurora Perez Jimenez. And the play Recreation of the History Told in the Mishte Colises by the community theater Yeonyu Sabi, directed by Maria Ofelia Porras Lescas. This podcast season is made possible by the generosity of Alejandro and Charlotte Santo Domingo and Mrs. Julio Mario Santo Domingo with Andres and Lauren Santo Domingo. If you want to know more about the Santo Domingo Center, please visit SD Cellar website, sdcellarbritishmuseum.org. This podcast was recorded, engineered, and edited by Prong Productions. For more information on Prong, please visit prongproductions.com. That's P-R-O-N-K productions.com.